I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 on page 1187. Let's hear God's word together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. And you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, now this week and last, we've been considering the standards required of Christian leadership. All of us will have leadership on our minds in one way or another, whether we're Liverpool supporters or cricket fans. You know, they're the same group of players, essentially. The Conservative Party in the United Kingdom appears never to think of anything else. And with over 4 billion people going to the polls this year, leadership is going to be very much on the cards. I guess any one of us here in business will think a great deal about leadership. There are business schools and leadership schools and so forth. But for the last two weeks, we've been thinking about leadership of the Church of God. What is the shape of genuine godly leadership? What's required for churches to be established? How should they be led and by whom? I mentioned last week the almost terminal decline in mainline denominations, and yet, at the same time, the resurgence, largely unrecognized, of Christian faith. There are multiple startups and an exponential rise in non-mainline denomination Christian outlets. How should they be led? What is genuine Christian leadership? At the same time, throughout my life, Uh, as I'm sure yours, you will have noticed there have been Christian leaders in the press. We seem to be beset by pretenders. There's nothing new here. Jesus warned of it. Beware wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are bound to be some here who have experienced very inappropriate so-called Christian leadership, for which I have to say I'm profoundly sorry. With scandals and inquiries... What is the gold standard? The Apostle Paul saw multiple churches established through his preaching ministry. His normal pattern was to go into into a place, preach the gospel, but then to return weeks or months later to establish and strengthen and encourage the church. Listen to a record of Paul's activity from Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, 
where they'd obviously already been, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that pattern is repeated again and again and again in the Acts of the Apostles, and I've jotted down some of the references there on your sheet. So it is wrong to see Paul simply as a pioneer church planter. He was a church builder above everything else, and he did it by strengthening and encouraging churches. But in Thessalonica, this city that we've been studying, its church there, he was unable to return. He was thrown out and couldn't make it back. And therefore, in this letter, we have an absolute gem. Chapter 1 describes the model church that was established at Thessalonica, and then chapter 2, the model ministry that established the model church in Thessalonica. Last week, we were looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and we saw the bold declaration of the Christian gospel with the courage of the authentic gospel worker, the faithful execution of gospel ministry with the integrity of the authentic gospel worker, and then the humble affection in the Christian gospel with the love of the authentic gospel worker. This week, we move to godly exertion, and careful exhortation as we look at verses 9 through 12. Just before we get into it, it's important for us to realize that all of Paul's ministry and all of his practice stems from the gospel. So chapter 2, verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Chapter 2, verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Chapter 2, verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the announcement from God of the global rule of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God is the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord And the gospel of God is a summons to turn from serving man-made idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from God's coming judgment. An idol is the tangible expression of any human philosophy or ideology. It could be religious, it could be secular. Ranges across anything from Islam or Hinduism to secularism, hedonism, materialism, even communism. If we reject the truth of the one living and true God, we replace God's truth with human ideology. We'll turn from our devotion to something other than the living and true God. And the tangible expression of human ideology is what we'll turn to. We'll end up worshipping career or the markets or our hobbies or our image or the planet or the environment, something other than the one living and true God. And so there is the gospel from which Paul's ministry stems. And now in verses 9 to 12, adding to what we were looking at last week, we find Paul's godly exertion. 
Verse 9 focuses on how the apostle supported himself and how Silvanus and Timothy made ends meet. And with the disintegration of mainline denominations and the need for planting and establishing new Christian ministries, this could not be more important. Some of us have been used to the idea of Christian ministry being provided on a plate. The denomination paves the way, or rather pays the way. Such days are at an end. And so verse 9 is key. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, the work Paul is referring to here is not so much the work of preaching. It is his labor with his hands in order to make ends meet so that he and the band of Christian workers with whom he operated could eat as they engaged in proclaiming the Christian gospel. We need to think carefully about this. Elsewhere, Paul insists that the Bible teacher in the local church deserves his wages. I'm thankful that he says that. It frees people up for the work of the gospel. But when engaged in pioneer preaching, Paul was adamant that the Christian gospel, which offers to us forgiveness from God for free, should be extended to the listener free of charge. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by it, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Now we can see that same emphasis in verse 9, that we might not be a burden to you. So yes, Paul was supported by incredibly generous missionary giving from the church in Philippi. They sent money once and again. And yes, Paul had been sent out originally with the generous support of the church at Syrian Antioch, which itself had been established by generous giving from the Christians in Jerusalem. So there were shed loads of missionary giving going on in the early church to fund the rapid expansion of the Christian gospel. But Paul made a point when he was in virgin territory of offering the gospel of grace free of charge so as not to be a burden and so as there not to be any misunderstanding. Acts 20, 33, I coveted no man's silver or gold or, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. 1 Corinthians 9 again, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I present the gospel free of charge. And so Paul worked with his hands night and day so as not to be a burden, so that nobody would misunderstand his motive or the message of the gospel, that Jesus offers free forgiveness from the coming judgment of God to any who turn to him. Again, for free, by grace. And the work Paul did with his hands was the back-breaking, filthy, manual labor of tanning and tent-making. We casually talk about Paul, the tent-maker. We've little idea what tent-making involved. In a hot climate, dealing in the skins of dead animals was not only incredibly hard labor, it was also bloody, greasy, and came in hand in hand with the stink of rotting meat. Sorry to give you that at lunchtime. For a Greek culture that was equally as snobbish about manual labor as you are, and I am, 
it was considered demeaning, low-grade, and on a level was shelf-stacking Deliveroo or McDonald's on minimum wage. Now, this has a huge amount to say to us, particularly many individuals here who are thinking about what we like to call paid gospel ministry. Please, the gospel worker deserves his, her wages. We are to support those who labor for the gospel amongst us. At the same time, please, if you are not yet someone who trusts in Jesus, we don't want your money. So I hope that every one of us who is a follower of Jesus has learned to steward the resources the Lord has entrusted to us carefully for the advance of the gospel. A rough starting guide for generous Christian giving is 10% of a salary. It's not a rule. It's a good starting point. For some, 10% would be too big a stretch. For others, 10% far too small. I just happened to check out this week what a newly qualified lawyer, one of the firms around here, comes in at, 125,000 quid. That's why they charge you so much for what they do. But 10% of that would be pitiful. Why would one not give 30,000 a year or more? It's all God's. We've been entrusted with it as a resource to use for his glory. You're only going to spend it on yourself. And we have mansions awaiting for us in the new creation. Worth us knowing that the cost of the team of men and women working to make the gospel known here in the city from St. Helens is around £350,000 a year. That doesn't include my salary, which would not double it, (laughs) which is fixed at the standard rate of a Church of England vicar. It's around about 25000 a year, slightly less. But if we're not yet with a house... If we're not yet a believer in Jesus, if we're not yet a believer in Jesus, why would we give? You know, Christian giving doesn't earn any favors with God for the unbeliever. We can't buy God off. Our debt is far, far too high for any amount of money to deal with what we owe God. We only give once we realize how generous God has been to us, and then we do it from a heart that is full of thanksgiving. It's one of the reasons why we don't take collections at our carol services or in our Sunday services here, for that matter. And the apostle is prepared to go without pay and instead to work with his hands. And as the mainline denominations collapse, so we will need to be more, this will become more and more the norm. You know, my generation, we used to take it for granted, a salary, a house, and back in the early days, private health care for vicars. But these things will be going, have gone out of the window. And I have to say, as I look at this verse 9, I, have, I find myself thinking of many of you in your offices. You work night and day, but your missionaries there, in order to present the gospel free of charge. And yet it is hard work, and that's exactly what Paul found. But it also blows the cover, doesn't it, on some of the total frauds who operate So I have a a heresy shelf in my study. It's just on the left as you come in the door, down low. So if you ever write a book, you better check that it's not there when it's published. But there are a whole load of real rogues books there. Brian Houston, You Need More Money, Hillsong. Benny Hinn, Lord, I Need a Miracle. Uh, Joseph Prince, Singapore, Destined to Reign. People who've made literally hundreds of millions, some of them, from preaching the gospel. This blows the cover on all of that. Verse 10, godly exertion. 
we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You are witnesses and God also. How holy, righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Holy is devout, pleasing to God, pious, God-fearing. Righteous is taking God's commands, his word seriously, a pure lifestyle, no secret scandals. Blameless is reputation far and wide beyond the church. Not sinless perfection, but blamelessness. And again, with this contrast so closely, doesn't it? So, uh, so profoundly with the scandals we see so regularly in the press. Incidentally, the question I ask every single one who reports to me every year and everybody in interview for any significant, any job at St. Helens, is there any matter in your private life which, if made public, would be a scandal to the church? It's a good question, isn't it, for interview? In an annual report, the review? But Paul walked the walk. He didn't simply talk about the holiness of God or the righteousness of God's ways or the need to be above reproach in all things he did. He lived it. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. How transparent. You are witnesses. You saw it. Now, I guess it might be possible to get verse uh, 10 and 9 slightly wrong. Sometimes you hear a Christian person saying, well, we just live an exemplary life and let our life do the talking. That's not verses 9 and 10, is it? Look at it. You remember, brothers, our labor and our work night and day not to be a burden while we proclaim the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. It was the talk and the walk, the walk and the talk. He did both. There was a consistency and authenticity to it all. God, Paul's model was not simply by way of example. He matched his walk with his talk. Well, we must keep moving. It wasn't simply the public proclamation and the godly exertion. There was also this careful exhortation, verses 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, at first glance, those three words at the start of verse 12, they look like they're basically saying the same thing three times over. That's not quite so. To exhort is to appeal. It's a strong word. It's the same root word as you find in verse 3. Some translate it admonish, others urge, others beseech. In Romans, I appeal to you, brothers. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Think of a parent on the touchline. A parent in GCSE year, or the coach. To encourage is much softer. It's the word used when Mary and Martha and people came to console them at the death of Lazarus. Encourage the faint-hearted, Paul says later. Encourage the faint-hearted. And then to charge is stronger again. It could be translated, I insist. It's certainly, I testify to you. 
Now, one author says this, with God's authority behind him, Paul's admonitions and consolations are not mere entreaties and requests, but demands that God's way be followed. But it's so rounded, isn't it? He doesn't bully and bulldoze. He does insist on living a godly life because he carries the imperatives of the gospel of God. And we see that, don't we, at the end of verse 12. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, behind it all is the future call of the living God. And all of Paul's preaching right the way through 1 Thessalonians is profoundly future-focused to wait for the Lord Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Comes again and again and again in the letter. There is a God. His name is Jesus. He has risen. He reigns. He will return. There is a judgment. We are accountable. You will meet him. Whether you like it or not, so will I. He delivers us from the wrath to come. He calls us into his kingdom. And it's a present continuous. He calls and goes on calling us into his kingdom. We will meet him face to face. He has in store for the Christian a place in his new creation for eternity. And it's guaranteed And there, there will be no more sin or imperfection or deceit or double standard or impurity, but only integrity and goodness and grace. And he calls us. Why would we not live a life of godliness and purity today? Why wouldn't we? And so Paul says to us, if we have some unseen secret habit, If there's any way in which we're not walking to please the Lord Jesus, is there part of us that we know needs correction, exhortation, admonishment, appeal, coming alongside, encouragement, and then testifying? He's coming back. Well, last week we finished by looking at some words which summed up Paul's ministry. And we said, courage, he had boldness to proclaim. Integrity, our appeal does not spring from error. Love, you became very dear to us. I wonder what words you would use to sum up these few verses. I've taken authenticity. I mean, wherever you break him like a stick of rock, Paul is just nothing but authentic because he has the gospel of God. And then, I don't know, urgency, appropriate authority, because he has the gospel of God. He is both in God and he has the gospel of God. And he speaks with all of these things, courage, integrity, love, authenticity, and urgent authority. And then there's transparency, isn't it? It's written all over it. Verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, you remember. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know how. He was an open book. There was nothing secret. Everybody could see his emails. He didn't need anything encrypted. Well, I have a dream. 
I mean, I have several dreams, but I have this particular dream around this chapter. What, what if, you know, what if, what if every village and every community in every town and every city in the United Kingdom had a ministry of a couple, an individual, two or three people like this, why, it would transform the whole of the United Kingdom and it would reach right out into Europe as well. People be talking about it everywhere. I, I know, I think, a particular couple come to mind who left here and went to do gospel work in a particular market town. They were there just short of 20 years. It changed the whole town. What if? What if on every floor of every building in every company there was one, maybe two, three people living like this, compelled by the gospel of God, gripped by the gospel of God, in God, with the gospel of God? Why? It would change. It would reach across the world. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray that the rule of the risen Lord Jesus would grip us profoundly at the deepest level, that in, in your kindness you would form in every one of us this sort of gospel courage and integrity love for our colleagues, uh, this authenticity that we both walk and talk the same way and urgency. We pray that you would form this in us for the honor and glory of your name and the benefit of many men and women and children in Jesus' name. Amen.